This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to Country Breakfast. I'm Clint Jasper. This morning, we're heading on a road trip around Victoria to see how farmers are balancing their soaring bills with record commodity prices. And we'll have the heartbreaking reason this year's kakadu plum harvest was so small. It's been an incredibly difficult time for people in Wadid, and uh, that's been on every level. First, Serena Locke is here with Rural News and nothing could be bigger this week than the nasty announcement that a long-feared pest has arrived on our shores. That's right, Clint, and authorities have already begun destroying beehives around the port of Newcastle and at Bulladila on the mid-north coast. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of bees and it's all because of the varroa mite. Um, it's it's a tick. It's like a tick that burrows into your dog, a tiny mite, Varroa destructor. It digs into the bees and it breeds up in the hive. Now, we've been reporting on the threat of Varroa for years, um, the risk it poses to honeybees and the wider agriculture industry because it spreads diseases and it causes beehives to collapse. Now, the Varroa destructor is in every other continent, even New Zealand. So if there's a silver lining here, the industry has been preparing for this scenario for many years. Yeah, because as it turns out, it was discovered in sentinel hives near the port of Newcastle. Yeah, sentinel hives being where they regularly check for such pests. Now, it's um, as a result, the bees are locked down in New South Wales and other states have also banned the movement of bees from New South Wales into their state. Now, beekeeper David Vile has had 150 hives destroyed already, more to come. And while he's devastated at the loss of these bees, he knows how important it is to contain any spread of varroa mite. On one side I'm concerned but on the other side I have you know complete faith in the DPI and the traceback system and it's not even a week and they've sort of done such an amazing job so there's always concern there but we're in very good hands. You know once again I'll emphasise if you're a beekeeper and you're not registered, register because it's vitally important we know where every hive is. I think lots of people have seen that picture of a supermarket grocery section side by side with what it would look like without bees to pollinate crops. So I'm imagining that there are some very worried fruit and nut farmers at the moment. Yeah, and indeed, almost 300,000 beehives are needed every year to pollinate almond trees. And with many of those farms in Victoria and South Australia, the movement ban as well, um, the varroa mites um, have farmers very worried in those areas. Now, the same goes with macadamias, blueberries, raspberries, avocados. So many are reliant on bees to do that pollination. And they're all just weeks away from needing that service. Now, the CEO of the Almond Board of Australia, Tim Jackson, described the situation as a biosecurity crisis. We're hoping that it can be. The fact that uh, the conditions were in the middle of winter when bees don't move around a lot um, and there's not many, uh, very few uh, commercial uh, beekeepers within the Newcastle area works in our favour. So uh, fingers crossed we can contain it to that Newcastle area um, and, and get on with business as usual during August. Well, Varolmite is the cat 10 of biosecurity disasters for beekeepers, and I guess the livestock version would be foot and mouth disease, which is currently causing chaos in cattle markets and dairy markets in Indonesia. 
Yeah, and vaccinations against the disease have started to ramp up, Clint, but foot and mouth disease has spread rapidly across Java in the last few weeks. More than 200,000 cases are now recorded across 19 provinces. According to the Department of Agriculture, Australia has provided lumpy skin disease vaccine to assist Indonesia and is in the process of procuring foot and mouth vaccine. Now, Australia has so far committed $910,000 for lumpy skin disease support on the vaccine procurement and for communication campaigns and materials in Indonesia. Dick Slaney is the general manager of, of farm operations at Greenfields Indonesia. Now, he says FMD is causing huge upheaval in the dairy and cattle markets. We're seeing a drop in milk production of around about between 30 to 50 percent across the region and the market is full of cattle being culled by either small farmers by the reason that they are sick or they are simply too afraid of the disease and they want to sell them before they can get vaccinated, before they can get hit by FMDs. Grain producers are revelling in one of their best couple of years and new silos are selling like hotcakes to farmers. Yeah, in the little old town of Walla Walla, southwest of Wagga Wagga, one company is run off its feet making silos and storage bins. Now, with a record grain crop last year and another forecast this year, orders for silos are flooding in. Andrew Costa is managing director of that family business and he says silo making has a backlog of orders and there's a two-year waiting list. There's no doubt that with the end of the drought uh, and a lot of grain production um, or high grain production happening that uh, silos are in fairly significant demand, unprecedented really from our perspective. We're just seeing that that's going to continue while prices are high. Hey, if you're in the market for a milking camel or a pet camel, this weekend could be your chance to pick up a big bargain. What's going on? Yeah, well, approximately 300 animals ready to be auctioned off over the next four days in what's thought to be Australia's largest camel sale because a camel dairy in Rochester, Victoria, is closing down. Michael Downey is running this auction. He says it's a good time to grab a bargain and build a new dairy, perhaps, uh, because camel milk is fetching $20 a litre. Yes, I was quite surprised and that's why I think there could be excellent demand in, in this herd of domesticated and well-trained camels. The current owners have been running the camel dairy operation for seven or eight years successfully, but due to the investors being based in America, they're in a position where the current world climatic situation, they're saying that they want to uh, withdraw their investment out of Australia and so they've instructed me to um, to sell all their assets in Australia which is a bit of a shame to see but a uh, great opportunity for someone else to buy some proven camels and get into the industry. <laughs> so the 300 camels are being sold on auctions plus over the weekend and uh, the next few days. If you can't make it work at $20 a litre, when will it work? Mm, no. <laughs> Don't get that for ordinary cow's milk. You need to find someone who actually wants to drink it I think. The price of meat has put prime cuts like fillet steak and lamb cutlets out of reach for many people. So what are they replacing it with? Yeah, well, huge prices um, and we're now seeing for those premium cuts of meat, but it's helped reignite a taste for brisket, which I know is a delicious cut. Now, mm. more and more Aussies are, are turning to this type of meat. You fire up your slow cooker and your barbecue and it's really best done with a barbecue rub Starting on a very low heat and patience, says Lumberjack barbecue owner Craig Millard. 
and you've just got to set aside plenty of time. You cannot rush a brisket. I can cook 10 brisket in my trailer cooker. They can all be put on at the same time, same temperature, same size brisket, and they all come off at different stages. The brisket will let you know when it's ready, when it's relaxed and at the right temperature to wrap and and uh, put back in and bring up to the right temperature and then rest them. I rest mine for between 8 to 10 hours. A couple of tips there, and it's a, a very American thing to do with the 4th of July just around the corner. Yes, it's been literally a slow burn in Australia, but it's been a long um, you know, practice tradition in America. I love it. Serena, are you off to buy a camel at the auction? No, I don't think so. I've got no room for a camel. <laughs> Same here, but thank you very much for that wrap of Rural News this week. Thanks, Clint. ABC RN joins the celebration as the ABC turns 90 years young. Like the music show with a look back at the ABC's involvement in radio, music and sound. The History Listen presents a stunning documentary on the first 20 years of the ABC's live television plays and Soul Search with a series on the national soul. It all kicks off this month on ABC RN or anytime on the ABC Listen app. This week, we'll meet a man working in one of the most remote parts of the country. He's employed as a road grader, smoothing out red dirt roads in Western Australia's outback, with just wild animals and his guitar for company. We'll find out why Tasmanian devils have found a new home in tropical North Queensland. And we'll meet a goat breeder who's seeing increased demand for the animal's meat and their weed munching abilities. They're the best version of weed management you can imagine. And there's only a, a very small number of weeds that they won't have a crack at. They're not too keen on bracken fern, uncommon to contrary to what some people believe. But if you're talking blackberries, brambleberries, willow, you know, your woody trees, blackwood, wattle, hawthorns, thistles, ragwort. Yeah, there's really nothing that they won't have a crack at. Nature's whippersnipper. It's one reason goats are proving popular. That story is coming up. First today, we're meeting a family that lives and breathes soot, steam and grease. Three generations of the Goss family from Devonport have dedicated years to helping run a tourist railway in the Tasmanian town. Hi, I'm Des Goss. I'm Grant Goss. And Matt Goss. These three generations of the Goss family share a passion for railways, and in particular, steam locomotives. All railway men, yes, from 1973. I was down here and I brought Grant with me as a young lad and got involved. I mean, we could not go away from the place. Hello, I'm Rick Eaves. I've come to the station yard of Tasmania's Don River Railway Line. It's a volunteer-driven tourist vintage railway in Devonport on the state's northwest coast. After becoming involved with the railway in the 1970s, Des has passed on his passion to his son Grant and grandson Matt. My father worked on steam traction engines in the early days. I think it was in my blood. Straight to the hospital if you've got steam in your blood. Well, Des, that's not good. this is true, yes. So I'm over 80 at the moment and climbing, of course. I'm 55, 
I must have been about six when I come down. It was in Des's blood and you just had no choice at all. Yeah, that's it, yeah. Dr drummed into me, yeah, no, <laughs> no choice at all. How it really started, I was into the Don Railway a bit, or Van Diemen Light Railway, them days, and I bought a train set for Grant for Christmas, and because I played with it more than he did. So it just sort of snowballed in the small collection of railway toys. What are your earliest memories, Grant, at age six? I remember sort of the first day we come down here, there was a whiskery man that looks like someone that was on TV. <laughs> His name was Glenn Stewart. He, was, he looked like he was from the past. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I always thought he looked strange. And yeah, we'll have a giggle at that. So they were ready to go down and start doing some track work. He said, oh, yeah, I'll hop on board and... They just had a little shunter and we hopped on and went down for a ride and my mum and my nan and my sisters and that were down at the beach and we didn't want to go to the beach so we come down here for a look and we forgot all about everyone at the beach at East Devonport <laughs> so they had to start walking home. <laughs> so I remember that as well but that was my first recollection of the Van Diemen Light Railway Society as it was then. And Matt, what about you? You were born and these two were already way gone into trains. Yeah, that's right. Never really a choice. Brought down here from a very young age. Very much got involved. I had the steam bug as early as I can remember. So every day in the school holidays, used to help out on the engines. Just steamrolled to where I am today, which is, yeah, a fully qualified driver. So... Is it literally the case that the earliest smells you can remember are like grease and oil and coal? Yeah, definitely. And that's a big part of the attraction of a steam engine is the smells and the sounds. Something of a fat controller, aren't you? I mean, you're tall and skinny, but pretty much running the show here at the moment? I guess you could say it like that. <laughs> I'm down here now in a full-time capacity to do all the events and functions that we've now sort of grown into. It's a really exciting time for the railway in general. Are you all qualified drivers? Yeah, I'm a qualified driver, fireman, whatever, yeah. Diesel and steam. Yeah, I'm a qualified fireman on the steam engine. I can drive all the diesels. Des, though you don't even paint those toy trains that you stole off your son. No. You, you do paint the real ones here by yeah. hand. Yes, really like painting them. How long does it take to paint a steam train? Well, it depends how bad it is when it comes into the workshop. Get all the repairs done to it before I start sandpapering and grinding it down to put the first coat of paint on it. Undercoat and then the three top coats that I normally put on them, yeah. It sounds like a life's work to do well, one of those. It's actually a pleasure to see the end article been painting for the last 30 years. I reckon you've painted probably everything here once or not twice. Still got a few more years of painting left in me yet. <laughs> yeah, because you're apparently 80-ish and, and yeah. about the only thing you're honest about is it's still going up. Yeah, this is true. Unfortunately, it is going up, but oh, I think I've got another 10 years here yet. So what, you'll be 95 yeah. when you finish? <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> keeps me going. Have you heard of uh, spray painting technology? Couldn't act of spray painting at all. I've got a good wrist and I've got a good eye. He lives and breathes it. Uh, lucky enough to be on an engine from Bernie to Don here uh, with Dad. Be probably the, one of the proudest moments. How do the rest of the Goss family cope with you three stinking of grease, sooty faces <laughs> all the time? Well, my wife, she makes me do all the washing and soak them before I put them in the washing machine because she wouldn't want to touch them, I don't think. <laughs> called penance. That's right, this is true. I love being in the sheds. What are all the smells 
that make that train smell? It's mainly the ash, the dripping of the oil, and coated on the outside as well. You just sort of can't get away from it. You get there from morning to pre-light it up for the next day, polish it all up. It smells like history and adventure. It does, yeah. At the same time. Yeah. Grateful to sit on these lovely Tasman Limited carriages. They're beautiful. I had a ride and the loco with you. That's not so comfortable, is it? It's a very different experience up front. It's uh, kind of raw. It's something that, yeah, not many people get to experience. We feel very privileged. So tell me about that engine you've about finished painting, Des. That's MA2. It was sat outside for years, so I decided to take it inside the workshop, give it a good coat of paint. Probably take me six months or more. Not every day, of course. I only come down here three days a week. <laughs> Lazy bugger. That's the pain, not to fire the steam train or do anything else. 6am. Yeah, I come in early because I like to get the work done. At this stage of my life, I get a bit tired of an evening when I go home, but you can understand it, I suppose. When Tony Toya clocks off for the day, he settles down below a night sky and plays his guitar. He works in the desert, hundreds of k's from the nearest town, and says the fireside performances are key to staying sane. you got to have music as you go mad. Hello, I'm Emily Smith. I've caught up with Tony Toya on the Great Central Road, near the Chukila Roadhouse in Western Australia's remote outback. Mr Toya is the only remote grader operator working to smooth out rough red dirt roads in the most far-flung parts of the Laverton Shire Council. The council is headquartered in the town of Laverton, nearly a thousand kilometres northeast of the West Australian capital, Perth. But its network of roads, which cover 4,500 kilometres, travel much deeper into outback desert country. I go from Laverton to the Chooka Roadhouse. It usually takes me a month. I do it in two lots. And then I go from Laverton on the uh, Banya Road. And when I start going out that way, it's really remote. I don't see anyone. How, is that scary or lonely? I love it. I love it. Why? Um, I think it's just because I like being on my own. It's just something about it. I like the outback. I like. I get a lot of dingoes come up to me at night, wild dingoes. You see a lot of kangaroos out here. You see a lot of camels. And you see a lot of people broken down. Over the years, Mr Toya has spent a lot of time working remote jobs. I've always been a machine operator. All my life, worked in the mines for 28 years. Got sick of that, went into road train driving. Got sick of changing tyres, so ended up coming down here and jumping on this grader. He works two weeks on, one week off, and when he comes to work, he comes prepared. I tow a four-axle trailer behind a grader, which consists of 1,000 litres of water, a generator, 10,000 litres of fuel, big container, Got shower, washing machine, fridges, freezers, TV, and my guitar. It's that guitar and a powerful set of headphones that keep him sane, filling his days with music despite the constant rumble of the grader. So I usually have blues playing, or used to be Jimmy Hendrix was the one that really got me into it when I was a kid. Then you got Steve Ray Vaughan and all the new ones coming up now, so. 
And it's not always just the dingoes enjoying his nightly fireside jam sessions. Yeah, now and again you'll get campers who come through and they'll see my camp set up in the bush to see the fire. I think it's the fire that attracts them. They come over, can we come over to your fire and all? Yeah, come over. In the old time, people have had guitars, so we had jam around the fire. and It's really good. But when he's on the tools, Mr Toyer can be wary of others. A lot of the tourists are the worst, because they fly past a grader, they're dust, there's stones all flying up, they hit the glass on the doors. We already had one break, because it's about eight grand to fix it. It gets quite annoying, try and tell them to slow down, but half the time they haven't got the two ways turned on. What do you think would be an appropriate speed? 80 kilometres. I think pulling a van, they should travel between 60 and 80, but they don't because they want to get to where they're going. They just don't care. After all, it's easy to get in trouble out here. Mr Toya says he's certainly been there. Had the greater bulk for three days, and I got out in the end, I crab-walked it out. I didn't think I was going to get out, but I was that far away from anyone. You've got no choice. You've got to get out. Sounds really hard. But like, what were the conditions like? It was raining at the time. Been raining for about a week. The road was... I thought it was pretty safe to go through where I went through and got a bog, but obviously it wasn't. Stressful. Very stressful. Mr Toya says even though he loves his job, he's not going to do it forever. I reckon another year, then I'll retire. What are you going to do then? Travel across east, go right down, go right around Tasmania and then go to New Zealand where I come from and go right around New Zealand. I've been over here for 37 years. Sounds like an awesome plan to dream about while you're sitting on the grader. Well, it's not going to be a dream, it's going to be reality, it's going to happen. When that happens, the Laverton Shire Council could struggle to fill his shoes. You've got to not be scared to be out in the bush here because it can be a bit scary at times. I've been had a few times and if anything goes wrong you get to be able to fix it because no one's going to come out to you and this is really bad. Maybe something for the people thinking of applying for your job in the future to, to consider. I don't think there's many people out here that could do this job. Honestly I know there'd be a few people out there say oh yes I can, yes I can but you come out here and do it, it's something else. Tony Toyer, who spends his weeks alone in the desert as a road grader in Western Australia, he spoke to reporter Emily Smith. And I will not be rushing to put in an application for Tony's job. You can see more on that story if you head online to the RN homepage. You'll find Country Breakfast under the Programs tab. I'm Clint Jasper with you on RN this morning. Still to come, the goat breeder scrambling to keep up with demand as goat meat becomes more popular. And we'll meet some Tasmanian devil joeys adjusting to life in tropical North Queensland. That's not the kind of noise you'd expect to hear in far north Queensland. Those distinctive cries of Tasmanian devil joeys are more likely to be heard among the snow-capped peaks of the country's southernmost island state. Hello, I'm Phil Brandell, and I've come along to rainforest station at Coranda, just outside of Cairns in far north Queensland, where these joeys are settling in to their new home. So we've just had three young boys arrive to us uh, just over a month ago from Taronga Western Plains Zoo down in Dubbo. Really excited to get the boys here. They're three brothers, just recently turned one at the end of March, so young and vibrant, full of energy. David Kelly, who was the wildlife team leader here, 
says the Young Devils are part of an important project to conserve one of Australia's most vulnerable mammals. There's a big breeding program in the captive facilities around Australia to help protect and conserve the devils. They have had a pretty tough time over the last 20 years. Disease has really ravaged the wild population. I know a lot of people would know about facial tumour disease, but that's not just one disease, is it? No, so the original strain was discovered in 1996, and it was at the time just one of a few contagious cancers in the entire world. There's been a second strain discovered in Tasmanian devils since, as we've done more research in that and both of those diseases have had a really big impact on the populations. How important is it to separate devils like the ones you've got here in far north Queensland from the wild population? Yeah it's absolutely critical so 25 years ago we were staring down the barrel of what we believed was going to be a extinction of this species. We thought that we were going to lose them in the wild altogether We were desperately trying to get any disease-free animals out of the wild and into captive populations so that we could set up a really uh, rugged, thorough captive breeding program so that when we were able to learn more about this disease and provide shelter for them from the ravages of this disease, that we'd be able to reintroduce them. And is that still going on? Yeah, so it's changed quite a bit over the years. So there's been a vaccination for the disease that's been developed and that has shown to have an immune response in the devils, which is great. Uh, Just recently, for the first time, they've been able to use some new techniques to actually cure some previously disease-affected individuals. So at one point, we were looking at a 100% mortality rate for the infected devils. So the fact that that has changed for the better is only a positive. All devils that are in captivity, they're actually genetically mapped, aren't they? Or their DNA's been mapped? Yeah, absolutely. So as a managed species, there is what we call a stud book keeper who basically has a list of every captive Tasmanian devil in the whole Australasia region and they make breeding recommendations to zoos and wildlife parks that house these animals and we very much go on whatever's best for the species but we could get a phone call that says, you know, one of your boys would pair up really beautifully with this animal down at Taronga, are you happy to send them along and we'd always be happy to oblige. One of the more famous, I guess, devil breeding facilities is Devil's Ark in New South Wales. But actually any devil that is in captivity is part of the Ark program, aren't they? Yeah, effectively. So when we were still learning about this disease, you know, several decades ago now, obviously it was a massive concern for us. There was still a lot about it that we didn't know. And it was really important for us that all of the captive populations were well isolated from one another so that if the disease did get into the captive population, we weren't going to lose all of those populations. It would be a much more localised impact. I'm chatting with David Kelly from Rainforest Station, who's one of the keepers here. We're chatting about the uh, new Tassie devils that have just arrived. Uh, How old did you say? Just one year old? Yeah, the boys uh, just had their birthday at the end of March, so they've just turned one. So very young, energetic. At this age, they're actually really good climbers. That all slows down a bit as they get older, so we're really enjoying how active they are now. When are they most active? So they are a nocturnal species, so if you were to uh, come in in the middle of the night, they'd certainly be running around. But that being said, at this age, the boys are still quite active in the mornings and the afternoons. It's just that, you know, right in the middle of the day, particularly in those hot times of year, that's when they're going to be at their least active and they're going to be sleeping. That being said, even if they're fast asleep, if they smell food, that wakes them up pretty quickly. Well, let's go and wake them up. Let's go on, uh, into the pen, give them a feed and see if we can wake them up. No worries. Through the gate we go, raw meat ready to go, and through this gate as well, big red rake, through the gate, stepping up into the enclosure, see if we can get the boys to wake up a little bit. Now you might be able to hear them, they've started to do a uh, bit of a chuffing noise at the moment, so that's just telling us to keep our distance.
spread a bit of the blood around as well yep. from their food. That generally helps to stimulate the noses. You can see their little noses working overtime. And they do have an excellent sense of smell. Typically Tasmanian devils are actually a scavenger. Rather than actively going out and hunting their food, they're playing a really important role in the environment by going around and cleaning up animals that have passed away from other causes. How often would they eat in the wild? Yeah, so it depends heavily on what's around. Uh, very much opportunistic predators. If they see the opportunity to go for a meal, they certainly won't bypass it. can be lots of small meals when they're available, but if they do find something really big like a, a kangaroo that's passed away, then that'll be a big feast for them. They'll get stuck right in and then they may not need to eat much over the next few days. And are they carnivores or omnivores? No, so they are carnivores. So uh, they will prefer to eat meat whenever that's available. When meat's a bit scarce, sometimes they will go for smaller insects and invertebrates and things like that, but certainly the overwhelming bulk of their diet is made up of meat. Raising goats had been in the family for Tasmanian farmer Cullen Morse. My father had Angora goats when I was young, and um, they're a fleece breed, and, and I got interested in goats probably in about 2011, 2010, 2011, and started off with some, some boar angora cross does, and it's kind of just gone from there. When he started his own goat herd, Cullen opted for a meat breed and chose the South African boar goat. I didn't want to shear twice a year, and I didn't want to milk every day. And I wasn't really that interested in miniature goats, and so that leaves not many others. Obviously, boar goats kind of stood out from there, and there's a demand for both from the animals live and for meat. And so I saw a bit of an avenue there to get started with the breed back then. Hello, I'm Jessica Schremer. I'm chatting with Cullen among some of his goats at his property at La Trobe in northwest Tasmania. He's one of a small number of goat breeders in the country and says demand for his animals is increasing as eating goat meat becomes more common in Australia. Now there aren't that many breeders in Australia. What does the demand look like? Yeah, the demand at the moment is significant. Probably seeing it best on the mainland at the moment where there's some big dollars going for particular breeds of animals or particular genetics. There's still, there's certainly demand in Tasmania. The demand in Tasmania is probably more for the meat because there are no rangeland or feral or wild goats in Tasmania that can be regularly harvested for meat production and so that means that farm goat meat can't get priced out of the market essentially. So there's, a, there's certainly a demand for meat and there's an undersupply. There's also a demand for breeding stock however um, it's probably more emerging in comparison to to the meat demand I'd say. And how many goats do you run here? Um, I'm currently stocked at about 75 or something like that across multiple properties and I've been leasing them out essentially as weed managers um, and that's been working really well both for me and, and for the people that I've been leasing my stock out to. There'll probably be about 50 to 60 kids on the ground this year so the kidding rate's quite high. I'll probably get twins out of pretty much everything that's in kid. Triplets is not that uncommon so numbers will kind of rise quite a bit and then there'll be a, an annual sale at the end of the year. Where do you sell them to? Predominantly within Tasmania. I mean, I'm breeding what I call saleable breeding stock. I don't like to call them stud stock. I like to call them registrable stock because I don't, you know, pamper them and superfeed them and that type of thing. I'm trying to run, you know, registered or registrable stock in commercial conditions for the commercial producers in Tasmania that I'm predominantly selling to. So people that need bucks for their commercial herds or people that are buying a small group of does and a buck for a small holding or a hobby farm or um, people that might want to 
um, cross-graze cattle, uh, goats with cattle or horses. So there's a wide variety of people that are interested in bull goats and that they, or goats in general with bull goats, and there can be of benefit to them. I suppose I'm the person that's selling the breeding stock to the people that are primarily producing meat. So I'm not, um, I'm not producing meat myself and offering meat to customers. I'm producing breeding stock that will, you know, somewhere down the production line, produce meat for public consumption. Now, goat meat is actually one of the most consumed meats across the globe. But in Australia, it's sort of a bit of an untapped market still. It is. Percentage-wise, I think the vast majority of goat meat produced in Australia is exported. And there is a little bit of stigma around goat meat because it's not a, a traditional source of red meat protein for you know contemporary Australian society. But you've got a lot of migrant and ethnic groups that are so used to goat meat because it's their primary source of, of red meat protein. So a lot of Middle Eastern, Southeast Asian, Indian and Nepalese people you know, love goat meat and I get contacted regularly after goat meat and obviously I don't supply so I try and put people or point people in the right direction but yeah there's a lot of it produced but a lot of it not a lot of it is consumed in Australia yet I suppose. You've mentioned earlier there that you use the goats for wheat management as well tell me a bit more about that. Yeah they're well what I call they're the they're the best version of weed management you can imagine. And there's only a, a very small number of weeds that they won't have a crack at. They're not too keen on bracken fern, uncommon to contrary to what some people believe. But if you're talking blackberries, brambleberries, willow, you know, your woody trees, blackwood, wattle, hawthorns, thistles, ragwort, yeah, there's really nothing that they won't have a crack at. And when I put them in cross-grazing situations at my home property and elsewhere, they go really well. And they, they do say percentage-wise you can probably run goats with other traditional grazing stock at 20 to 25% cost neutral. And, you know, I see that here because they go around and clean up what other stock don't really want. So they sort of have a lot of purposes. You can use them for meat management, for meat production. What is it that, you know, attracted you to goats and racing goats? Yeah, it was... I suppose it was my upbringing when I was young, but I've I've got a real interest in the genetic improvement of the breed. Boars have only been in Australia since the late 80s, early 90s, when they were first imported from South Africa. And there's still a lot of work to be done with the genetic improvement of the animals. You know, they haven't had hundreds of years of genetic improvement in Australian conditions like your traditional breeds of British cattle and sheep have, for example. So that's my real take. I'm trying to breed genetically improve my herd generation upon generation to perform in Tasmanian conditions because they are a hot, dry climate animal from South Africa. And when you put them in wet, cold conditions, you've got to meet them part way or you've got to breed hardy stock. And I'm trying to do a little bit of both. But I do like to say that I'll meet them halfway, but they've got to meet me halfway. And I know if they do that here with me, then they're going to perform to whoever I sell them to in the future. Callan Morse, who breeds boar goats at his property in northwest Tasmania, where he spoke to Jess Schremer. Before that, Phil Brandell met some of the Tassie Devil Joeys at Rainforest Station in far north Queensland. You can see photos of the Joeys, who look pretty cute despite their grunt being anything but, that's on the RN homepage. Look for Country Breakfast under the Programs tab. Got a minute? Dip into StoryStream for quick, easy, real stories from across the country. I was only 11. Apparently I was qualified to be the translator. When you're part of a team, you do it because you love it. Even now, I just get a little bit giggly thinking about it. Oh, it's just so exciting. Continuous, skippable Australian stories, exclusive to the ABC Listen app. I was going to say something else then, but anyway. <laughs> Blip. Look for StoryStream on the home screen of the ABC Listen app. 
For years now, the remote community of Wadair in the Northern Territory has generated hundreds of thousands of dollars in income through the wild harvest of kakadu plum. Last year, the region produced 12 tonnes of this bush tucker, but this year the community only managed to pick 500 kilos. What makes this particularly sad is that it was actually a good season for kakadu plums. But because of ongoing violence in Wadair, which has seen hundreds of residents flee the community, the ability to go out on country and actually pick the plums was affected. Matt Brand spoke to Scott McIntyre from the local Thamara Development Corporation, who says it's been an extremely challenging time for the community and for local businesses. You're probably aware that you know the community's been in the news a fair bit uh, lately for some challenging, challenging reasons that have been going on out there, some disturbances in the community. And... Um, that has a significant impact on the people, obviously, but also a big impact on the businesses out there, including ours. So uh, this year we harvested uh, about 500 kilos of, of plum. Uh, that comes on the back of last season where we harvested 12 tonnes. Oh, dear. Mm. So a, a significant a significant impact. And that, that primarily comes from the fact that our harvesters, our pickers, are, are you know, essentially freelance community members. They're mostly women in the community, and it's a annual event like it's not a um, put a call out for who wants to come picking uh, they they self-select and they come forward saying right we're ready to go and uh, this year obviously with all the disturbances and and um, events in the community there wasn't too many people putting their hand up and coming forward oh dear. so this this story of a, a significant drop in tonnage for kakadu plums it's not so much a thing to do with the season or the weather or the yields no, it's so that's just the, the, the troubles in the community. <clears throat> that's correct. Yeah. Oh, so, so the seasonal there are, there are obviously with any sort of commodity like that seasonal variations. We we think it's actually um, wasn't too, uh, too bad a season in terms of actual production, um, but the ability to harvest was the thing that's impacted. That's right. Um, we you know we mitigate the risk of that. We're aware it's an emerging um, enterprise. Uh, it's an emerging commodity. It's still being studied. It's still being worked out what the best use of it is and all that sort of stuff. Um, but for us on the ground, it's also an emerging opportunity, and we've got to be smart with how we mitigate the risks of things like this. You know, it's not not completely unexpected that we'll have disruptions of some sort in the community that might impact upon our ability to supply the market. So. We've done things like stockpiled um, previous year's harvest in the freezer, so we've got some supply from last year that we're still able to sell into the market. And importantly, we network with uh, through the North Australian Aboriginal Kakadu Plum Alliance. We network with seven other Aboriginal enterprises across the top end, from Broome across to Menangrida, and we can supply each other. And from that collective base, supply into the market to create a reliable supply. Okay, so uh, yeah, that alliance you talk about, NACPA, Overall, have, have all the communities been able to, to have a fairly decent harvest this year? Yeah, look, it's, it, overall it's fairly reliable. You know, there's, there's um, ebbs and flows like us this year, but I know um, this year Manangrida had a particularly good season. I think they've harvested about five tonnes over there, which is an increase on what they, they harvested last year. So for the market looking at an alliance like NACPA, there starts to become a, a smart and, and reliable uh, broader supply base. So... Customers that have perhaps locked themselves into deals, contracts, have they been properly supplied this year? Yes, they have. They have. Yep, yep. yep. There's that reliability there. And we have already seen um, sales um, from us to other partners and things like that. So, And, and we'll probably get to do the same if we need to. And at, at worst, like um, we know 
that um, it's sensible for us to support the development of the of the commodity of the of the industry. So you know where we might have a, an approach from a from a buyer, and if we can't supply it, we we have friends that we can refer them to that can supply. So uh, for Thumra there at Watt Air, uh, where do you go from here? Because it's a bit sad to hear about what's um, happening out there. It is, but I think you know um, I don't know who it was Roosevelt or someone said from from. Um, uh, you know, catastrophe comes opportunity, and um, that's that's how we're looking at it. I think we learn a lot from a season like this. Um, we learn a lot about the mobility of pickers. We learn a lot about what's required to be more reliable. I think what we'll see um, socially and um, economically out there is a spread out of the out of the centre of Watt Air. So, a lot of our enterprises historically are based in Watt Air itself. The the business, the the buildings are there. The people are all accommodated there. Um, people are talking and pushing government to say, no, we need to be out, we need to be more, we're rural people, you know. Yeah. They, they look a lot at places like Berry Springs and, <clears throat> excuse me, Howard Springs and they see the rural blocks and and they um, associate with that much more than um, sort of town living. Being a townie. Yeah, mm. and, and what air, like what air was always designed to be a, a service centre, not a, not a major um, you know, city. Uh, it'll never be a, a city, you'd imagine, but it's certainly grown a lot from from the early days. The population in Water itself is around about three thousand um, people, all living on top of each other. And there's all the land out there that people are attached to that they've got traditional ownership over, um, and they aspire to move out. So, for an enterprise like ours, that's beautiful because that mm. then spreads your your pickers out. You've got uh, the ability to manage the country. It starts to look like early development of a rural region, you know, where you've got some sort of commodity and some sort of purpose to to have a town, but also have, you know, rural blocks and, and people running their own businesses. A lot of reasons to get it right, isn't there? I including the financial incentive. The Kakadu Plum Harvest injects yeah. cash yeah. income into that community, doesn't so, it? So last year, uh, no, 2019, I think the the uh, industry uh, farm gate value was about $1.9 million. Uh, across the country, uh, they think by 2025 it's projected to go up to about three and a half million. Last year's harvest for us of 12 tons, um, that's sending about 140 thousand dollars into the pickers' pockets at, wow. at, at picking time, and then generating um, around about uh, three to four hundred thousand um, dollars of revenue to the business. So that's pretty significant. And then if you look at this year. You're down about five thousand dollars into pickers' pockets, and you know fifteen to twenty thousand into the into the um, business. So, um, what is also one of the largest um, in a good year, one of the largest supplies into that market. So, the annual harvest we think is around about in a good year is about fifty tons. Um, across NACBA, the alliance of businesses has been about twenty tons, mm -hmm. and Wattair was supplying twelve of that. So, you know, fairly big um, contributor to the market out at Wattair. And if we get it right in a good season, we learn from this year, look at the spread, look at the logistics of mobilising the pickers, learn from um, what we need to, to learn from in terms of reliability. Um, it's a really potentially significant, very significant uh, enterprise for a place like Wadi. That's Scott McIntyre, who is the Chief Executive of the Thumra Development Corporation based in Wadi. Northern Territory Senator Malandiri McCarthy has recently been to this community. I asked for her thoughts on what is going wrong at Wattair? It's been an incredibly difficult time for people in Wattair, Matt, and 
that's been on every level, you know, on a personal level with people needing to move out of their homes onto homelands for safety, uh, the fact that uh, children haven't been able to go to school and the school itself is uh, very concerned about that. So teachers have had to go out to the homelands. And now we're hearing in terms of the employment and the impact on this produce, which is fantastic for Wadi, with Kakadu Plum, it is of serious concern. So what's going wrong out there and what do you think needs to happen? Well, quite a number of things have to happen. Uh, what what we've been able to do is is provide, uh, you know, $775,000 to help establish and operate a mediation engagement group. Uh, that, that is absolutely critical. We have to have some sense of peace uh, amongst the different uh, clan groups and to bring people together. So that is a, a really strong uh, effort that is taking place at the moment. Uh, very difficult, of course, and, and it will take time. So we do need uh, people to kind of realise that there has to be calm here and there has to be an, a, a, you know, a willingness to, to move beyond what has been an incredibly tough, difficult and almost, uh, you know, I mean, what's the word? It's, uh, you know, I said it when I went out there, it was just so despairing and we have to move beyond that. So I'm certainly working with uh, uh, my agency, with the NIAA to work with them and the Northern Territory Government as well as, uh, you know, community elders at Wadir to see how we can actually move beyond this now and make sure that not only in terms of the Kakadu plum, but in terms of safety and, and life uh, in the region, that we get back to some sense of uh, safety and normality. I can't think of any business that would be doing well out there at the moment. You, you can't do well with this hanging no. over a town. No, that's right, Matt. And, uh, you know, I saw that myself when I was out there in May and I want to get back out there again uh, soon just to be able to, again, work with the elders but also, you know, reassure the community that uh, at a federal level uh, we see what's going on and we want to be there to ensure safety and a way forward. This idea flagged by the Thumra Development Corporation of letting more people live on rural blocks instead of all living there at what air? Um, people pushing for a life in the bush. What's your thoughts on that? It's an issue that has been raised over many years uh, where you have a number of different clan groups who've been uh, basically you know, made to live in Wadi and there has been requests over, over the years for uh, the homelands movement to be stronger so that those groups could be back on their country. And this is something obviously we took to the election uh, in terms of homelands across the Northern Territory, not just Wadi. And we would like to look at that uh, as an option again here, in particular with Wadi, to see what we can do to assist that, uh, if that's going to bring about calm, but if it's also going to bring about greater productivity. You know, we do uh, have concerns around employment. So if uh, programs or produce like Kakadu Plum are being seriously impacted when there's such a great asset of employment for the community, we, we need to act. Senator Malandieri McCarthy speaking with the NT Country Hours, Matt Bran. Uncertainty is everywhere at the moment. Inflation, rising interest rates and supply chain disruptions are throwing spanners into the works of nearly every part of the economy. For farmers, the picture is a little different because while their bills for things like fuel and fertiliser are soaring, in many cases, so too are the prices they're being paid for their crops and livestock. 
Georgina Warne is a grain grower in Victoria's Mallee region. It's not an exact science for me, the odd spreading. Some people are so precise. And this year she's putting out fertiliser on the first canola crop she's ever planted on her farm 300 kilometres northwest of Melbourne. I had three paddocks with good subsoil moisture and the price of canola was so high I wanted to have a go at it. While grain growers around the country were deciding what to plant this year, canola prices were already on the rise, largely because the crop in Canada was so poor. But when Russia invaded Ukraine, the price went through the roof. I ordered my seed in October last year with earmarking it for this year. The price last year was around the 900, 850 and it's about 900 plus at our local silo today, which is very high for canola. These high prices have enticed Australian farmers to plant a record 3.4 million hectares of canola this season. But the prices for all winter crops, which include cereals like wheat and barley, and legumes like chickpeas, are all high this year. And the weather forecast isn't bad either. Last year we had a fantastic season, and the year before as well, but from the end of last year onwards, the prices have just been phenomenal. This year it is shaping up with the rains we've had and the forecasts ahead looking for it to be a good season and the prices are still wonderful but our input costs are growing as exponentially as anything else so that might cap the profit. Those inputs are things like diesel fuel and fertiliser. Georgina Warns purchased urea this season to fertilise her crops and this time around it's much more expensive because again the war in Ukraine has severed the world from a major source of raw materials used to make those fertilisers. For example last year I paid on average $7.50 for urea for the farm and I thought that was very dear. This year it's currently averaging at about $1,300 and if wheat stays at $450 it's over a three and a half to one return on investment which is what I have to keep reminding myself when I'm outlaying these huge costs for these huge inputs. It's a delicate balancing act. The crops are only just established and a lot could go wrong before harvest. But with no end in sight to the conflict in Ukraine, grain growers are watching every cent they spend this year. It's a nightmare. <laughs> I've got spreadsheets on spreadsheets. Come on, you're right, bub. In you go. Drive 350 kilometres south of Georgina Warns farm and you'll find yourself in a dairy heartland undergoing some big changes. In you go. Come on. Melanie Ackley and her husband Paul brought their dairy farm in Larpent five years ago. The neighbours on both sides have left dairy and converted to beef and the industry as a whole has shrunk by 20% in the last five years. Yeah, so look, I think it, there's definitely been a, a decrease in milk volumes overall. Um, part of that seems to have come from the fact that there's been a number of farms that have, that have transitioned to either beef or sheep or who've moved away from, from the dairy industry in some way. Like Georgina Warne, Melanie is managing some massive bills for fuel, fertiliser and feed for her cattle, while at the same time being offered some of the best milk prices the industry has ever seen. Overall, the last um, two years have been fairly good. And this year it appears that um, with the current kind of pricing, despite significantly increased input costs, and, and I can't stress enough significantly increased input costs, that we're set for, for a good year this year. Farmgate milk prices in Victoria are approaching record highs as milk processors compete for a shrinking supply. But at the same time, the cost of a ration of feed for her cattle has shot up from $350 a tonne five years ago to $600 a tonne today. Melanie Ackley says it means every purchase on the farm is being scrutinised. 
that's a really, really critical thing for us is trying to make sure that, that we're getting the return on the investment. So if we're spending money on fertiliser, how much are we spending and, and why are we spending it? What would be our worst case scenario in terms of our expected yields? And then what's that going to mean when the milk check comes in? And are we going to be able to make the two match together? And if not, then what's the decision making there? Melanie and Paul are still keen to grow their business, milk more cows and eventually upgrade their dairy. But the highly uncertain economic environment has put any big purchases on the back burner this season. I'd be lying if I said it certainly hasn't caused us to review what we're doing and, and definitely the uncertainty is, is, has kind of put a lid on a few things and, and said, OK, let's just sit with where we are for now. Livestock prices have sat at historic highs for years now. Farmers have competed with meat processors at sale yards like this one as they rebuild their herds and flocks after the drought. That's seen new price records set on a near weekly basis, but Hamilton livestock agent Heath Templeton thinks this year things will start to come off the boil. I don't think that it'll, it'll dip a lot. I, like, I think that the records probably might not be set, but I think that it'll still hold at a very good rate. Years of strong prices and good seasons in the southwest of Victoria has created an on-farm investment boom. Heath Templeton says that investment has flowed past the farm gate. If the farmers are making money, this, this town's pumping. We've got car dealers uh, that are having an amazing time. We've got farm supplies that have an amazing time. You've got yards, um, even through into the supermarkets. When farmers have money, regional areas flourish. When farmers don't have money, you'll see people disappear. The mayor of the Southern Grampians Shire, Bruach Colleton, agrees. People are, are moving here for the, for the work, so we've seen a, a new sporting teams starting up, particularly in the younger sector. We're seeing uh, a lot more smaller businesses start up as well. So Hamilton CBD is looking really good. Some of the smaller towns like Coleraine, Penzers are starting to see small businesses start up and fill some of those retail spaces that otherwise have been pretty empty for a long time. While these are high times for Australian agriculture, farmers are also aware the rising cost of living is something that's impacting their communities too. In the wider community, there's a lot of angst about the prices going up so high. Our, we all have big fuel bills. We all travel so far every day and fuel's at 2.25 a litre. So it is the huge costs are affecting everybody. Grain grower Georgina Warren. Now, I spoke to Georgina, Melanie and Heath for a story I reported for ABC TV's The Business this week, and I'll put a link to that video on our homepage. But that does close out Country Breakfast. My name's Clint Jasper, and my thanks to Serena Locke, Kath McAllen and Marcus Hobbs for bringing the show together this week. And the feast doesn't stop here. More servings of radio goodness are coming right up here on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.